You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. The digital skills divide is a global problem one that requires more than just one group getting involved to help solve it. We have a new report out from the Digital Resilience in the American Workforce Initiative, otherwise known as DRAW. Joining me now to talk about it is Allison Asher Weber, a director with the EdTech Center at World Education. Allison, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ramona. You've done a scan. You've looked around the country. Tell me what you can about what that digital skills gap looks like. Over the last um, few years since the pandemic, we've heard a lot about the digital divide and there's been a lot of great work and solutions. And um, I think what's really important to see from our research is that despite all this effort, we still have you know over 30 million adults that are struggling to even learn to use technology of any kind. Um, and this is really shocking and upsetting to me that uh, new data from the 2021 NTI Internet Use Survey shows that despite all the efforts, attention the digital divide has, has gotten, um, we've only seen a 1% increase um, between 2019 and 2021 um, in the who has access to the Internet. And so you know, and we know who has, and this goes from 79% just to 80%. So that's 20% of our population that still doesn't have internet. And, you know, I mentioned are struggling to um, learn to even use a basic technology. So let me, let me ask you this. When you say they don't have access, what is keeping them from access? Is it money? Is it location or a combination? So it's certainly a combination. We, the digital divides of, for example, access to internet devices and more continues to reflect. And of course it's exacerbating existing inequalities when you analyze it by race, economic and other demographic factors. Certainly it's harder to have the infrastructure in, in rural areas and a lot of funding fortunately will be going to that in the infrastructure spending. However, it comes down to being a, a people problem. This is not an infrastructure problem. It's a people problem. The inequities in our society have, have decided to leave people behind and not prioritize creating opportunities, accessible opportunities for the 32 million that don't know how to use a computer or the 20% of our population that don't have internet to get the supports they need to learn why it's important, how it could help them. So part of it's the understanding of why it's important and that they have supports in the, and can feel confident that they can use it. But then there's this whole component of cost for many Americans, just the cost of the internet, the cost of the device is, is a, a big barrier. And I think that shows that it's not just infrastructure when a large number are, are in urban areas of who actually doesn't use the internet. That's what I was actually going to bring up is that I remember reading, and I think I read some of it in your report as well, that yeah. it's not just the rural area. This the statistic can be surprising um, to many of us who who perhaps thought of the digital divides existing more in the rural areas, but actually 76% of households without home internet are in urban areas, primarily in low-income neighborhoods. 
disproportionately affecting people of color. A recent report also showed that how many households lost internet during the pandemic at a time when it was most needed because they weren't able to pay for it. So there are interventions helping from the federal government to, to reimburse internet or make it more affordable. And, and we applaud those. At the same time, there have to be personal human interventions out in the communities to help people understand the power of the internet, where and how they can, they can get affordable devices or even loaned devices from their, their libraries. And all those kind of personal human-centered interventions are needed in addition to the support with paying for technology and internet. That sounds like a public-private collaboration, then. It's like the public funding stepping in to help. But where do you get that personal intervention? Who can lead that charge? One thing we found in our landscape scan was the importance of a personal connection and trust with the individuals who are not yet accessing the internet or are still developing foundational digital literacy. What we found is that embedding supports for, for digital, nav what we call digital navigation services. So help, you know, gaining access to the internet, a plan, a device, whether it's loaned or, or given or affordable to purchase and the supports to learn how to use it. Instead of hiring someone new or sending someone to a new program to do that, it's most important to embed that in locations and services that people are already trusting and using. So for example, when someone goes to a health clinic, when someone goes to an adult education program, when someone goes to their children's school, those are all touch points that need to be leveraged to, to support individuals. And so Interestingly, it's not about like hiring a whole new diverse workforce to walk the streets and ask, do you have internet? Do you it's actually training and equipping and providing the funding to existing social service programs, existing education and workforce programs to embed those supports within their services. I mean, no one should come to an adult education program or a workforce program and be served more than I would say we can argue about this four or six hours and not already have had their digital inclusions needs met. At the very first intake point, we need to figure out, do you have internet? Do you have access to a device? Do you need help with your foundational digital skills? Because digital literacy is a critical literacy that you need now to operate in this world, to get the information you need, access to opportunities. And if we don't address that first, we're doing a disservice to individuals in our communities. I think a lot of people don't realize, and you're probably familiar with this, because I think I met one of your colleagues at one of these locations, Jamie Harris. Goodwill provides a mm -hmm. lot of digital skills training. So if people are out there and they're hearing this and they're thinking, where could I get those skills? Where could I direct people? Goodwill has those programs. Absolutely. Goodwill has been a great partner with us in our in our work with the Digital S Coalition and more and you know is out in so many communities. I think what Goodwill and other organizations are working towards improving and, and part of this is our funding streams need to incentivize this is the ability to provide more just just in time flexible supports. So what has historically happened, and I will say, and I come out of adult basic education, it's like, oh, you need digital literacy, sign up for this two month 
class come three days a week. You know, that was kind of this cohort model of instruction. That no, no longer makes sense. Devices are portable. Software is portable. Like you don't need a computer lab. You can get help where and when you need it to onboard to using technology. And so how can we provide those supports more flexibly? So organizations like Goodwill are having more drop-in, they can call learning lounges or locations where there are digital navigators available. So someone can just stop in and get individual personalized support just in time at a location, whether it's a Goodwill, a library, you know, in some cases, even laundromats, where someone's there to help them. Formal instruction is critical and very important. At the same time, if you're talking about closing some of these shocking divides in who has access to the internet devices and and digital skills development opportunities, we need to get a lot more human-centered in our program design and delivery and, and our funding streams need to figure out how to pay for that. You guys have found some strategies and some resources that are helping close this. I think it's sharing that knowledge is going to help people around the country. So what have you seen that you would like people to know is out there for people who need these skills or organizations that want to help skill up their community? Our landscape scan looked certainly at the challenges that we're facing and the barriers, but also really focused on promising practices and solutions in six thematic areas, in how we better define digital skills. We look at those organizations that are starting to move away from just teaching discrete digital skills, do this, do that, towards kind of developing lifelong learners of technology, because technology is constantly changing. So who is doing that well? How can we continue to promote the development of digital resilience, not just basic literacy? Who is doing great work in advancing digital inclusion and equity? Best instructional practices and resources you can use now, including content and curriculum, both that's, you know, for in-person instruction or, or digital instruction. How organizations doing great work in assessing and validating digital skills so people can get screened into jobs based on having developed digital skills, whether in informal environments or just learning on their own. Also, really great work states and other adult education organizations are doing on for professional development for practitioners. And all of this work is the best practices, the the resources are being put into professional development opportunities that will be freely available to the field through the DRAW project. And we are really grateful for the Office of Career and Technical Education um, and Adult Education at our Department of Education for funding this and you know, making the resources, the learnings available so our field can continue its great work. So Allison, what is the intention of the DRAW Landscape Scan? When we started the DRAW project, we wanted to understand how the digital revolution that we're in, in which technology has been changing daily, and the learners, the the adult community members who we support are or will soon start using devices and software at work in their lives in ways that we aren't familiar with, right? The technology and, and our culture is changing faster than we as educators can keep up with. So how does this affect who, what, where, when, how, why we teach foundational digital skills? And most importantly for the DRAW project, as we'll be creating professional development 
resources to support teachers, what are the resources that are most needed to support them? And how can we get that to them and, and really change the way digital skill development can be accessed and how it is taught in our country? So what is the role of the employer? Because one of the things that we talk about a lot at Working Nation is that this access to digital skills can lead to really in-demand jobs. So how can you get employers involved in a community to help create that workforce that they need? The SCAN found a great need and opportunity in employer engagement and the need to help and provide professional development to educational and workforce providers out in the communities to create partnerships with employers. There's a number of reasons for that. First, employers can help give us access to the frontline workers and others who don't have the time to go off to a training out in the community. Though some of the best practices are whether it's um, union programs or, or Tyson Foods or others that are offering very culturally competent, responsive, multilingual, and other kind of trainings right at the workplace, often on paid time to their frontline workforce. What we found is a challenge and an opportunity that a lot of our workforce and educational providers express a difficulty in knowing what are the just-in-time skills employers need and keeping sort of that knowledge updated. So it's an opportunity in that if they are able to get that feedback from employers, they're very eager to design their programs to meet the needs. One thing we found, I think it was really interesting, is that many of the digital skill frameworks curriculums that we reviewed are a little bit too computer focused or or especially when you're talking about the found levels of foundational digital literacy and don't reflect the fact that at the workplace frontline employees and others are engaging with interfaces on machines engaging with um, scheduling and hr software on the phones even doing operations on their phones and so how do we keep providers aware of the opportunity to partner with the employer to train workers starting with their phones and building from that towards higher levels of digital skills? We know that employers will look at digital literacy capacity and, and skills as an indicator of someone's ability to learn and someone's ability to, to succeed on a job. And so that, you know, that's that kind of skills-based hiring model of no matter how someone learned it, they can navigate the internet, navigate a basic interface that could bring in a lot of opportunity for someone to get a job, advance within a job. One of the best ways employers can help us is, is articulating their needs very clearly so providers can plan their training around that. And then within their companies, make very clear what digital skills are needed so people can take that training in advance. Uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation that an individual may not know how important these digital skills are. There's a personal conversation that has to be had. How do you have that conversation? We found many organizations that were creating community partnerships, whether it's CBOs, faith-based organizations, even youth groups out in the community to help talk to and coach community residents to, to understand and, and start engaging with technology. That's certainly important. I think the best way is just to start using technology in your programming. 
That's a real authentic way that learners can start engaging and seeing its power. So uh, going back to adult education programs, health programs, like to, to, to actually use technology thoughtfully in their service delivery, but intentionally building in all the supports individuals need to succeed. And that is the way you show the power of technology, not talking to somebody. Cer certainly trusted community liaisons can help recruit someone to receive the supports of a digital navigator. We that, That's a best practice model. At the same time, it's the embedding, it's the contextualized learning that happens in authentic environments that we need to create. And so when we hear of large companies buying tablets to every employee and, and a phone you know, to, to deliver training, you know, there might be questions about privacy and what the phones can be used for or not. And those are really important worker issues to talk about. But at the same time, what an incredible digital inclusion strategy, whether it's a tablet or even virtual reality in some places, to have authentic opportunities to say, well, I'm going to use this device to learn at work or to perform my job duty better, support clients better if it's a retail organization. They themselves see the power of it. So Allison, what is one of the most important ways to be able to include and improve the instruction on digital skills? How can someone interested in doing that, make that happen? Our initiative, Digital Resilience in the American Workforce, will be producing a lot of great professional development resources. So please stay tuned and look out for them as they come. But the most important thing to know about best practices in digital skills instruction is that digital literacy and, and even higher level skills should, should not be taught in a vacuum. This is true with all adult education literacy and skills, but digital skills should be taught in the context of using technology to accomplish real things in people's lives. So whether that is at a workplace setting, using technology to do your job or to learn new skills needed on your job, or if it's in someone's life, you know, contextualizing digital skills in the context of a parent education program, you know, how do you use digital skills to find resources and opportunities for your children? Or in the context of a health initiative, you know, how do you use technology to, to access your health insurance and, and monitor your health? Whatever the context is, the best way to improve digital skills instruction is to contextualize it and embed it within real authentic use. I am going to put a link to the Draw Landscape scan in the article that is accompanying the podcast. Allison, thank you so much for talking to me about it. Thank you. I've been speaking to Allison Asher Weber, a director with the EdTech Center of World Education. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, editor in chief of Working Nation. Thank you for listening.